0: You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what Jesus said to Christians before he ascended. You will be my witnesses. Pretty straightforward. Really important. Essentially, it's an echo of the Great Commission, but it's in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, not in Matthew 28. You will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. Christians are called to proclaim the good news of salvation to be witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy easy to, easy to understand. But how about this? If we're honest, easier said than done. It's easy to say, "Great Commission." Easy to say, "Witnesses to the ends of the earth," and we should share the gospel with people. And everyone needs to hear the good news about salvation in Christ. And so, let's, as Christians, be witnesses, because because that's what Jesus wants easy for me to say, not so easy for me to do if I'm honest. So today we're going to get some help with this. And the help is going to come from the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. We are studying the book of Acts as a church on Sunday mornings. We find ourselves in chapter 17 and we get some good evangelism training, if you will. So I might have to remind you, you're at Omaha Bible Church today. You didn't come to an evangelism training seminar. But Acts 17 feels a bit like an evangelism training seminar because... The apostle Paul, he's on his second missionary journey. He's going to be in the region, in the region of Greece, uh, up, up in there, uh, on the map. And so the gospel's gone from Jerusalem and it's expanding, expanding, expanding. And what is so amazing about Acts 17 is he proclaims the good news of salvation in Jesus to people who are Bible believers. Okay? He preaches the gospel to people who already think the Bible is true. He preaches the gospel at the synagogue. And he's done this a lot. And so nothing new. Um, well we're going to see that again in Acts 17. But then something else happens when he goes to Athens. In Athens, he's preaching the good news of salvation, hope, forgiveness in Christ to people who aren't Bible believers. Same gospel, same message, same Savior, but he, he he's well aware he's not talking to people who are biblically literate. And so I'm going to use that maybe today, and I don't mean it in a derogatory, uh, making fun of way, but I might slip up and say we're going to evangelize biblically literate people, people who know the Bible more than just one verse or something like that. But then also we're going to see the Apostle Paul evangelizing, uh, giving the good news to people who are biblically illiterate. They're literate in other things. And so uh, both kinds of people are important, and they're both important because I know both kinds of people. Uh, and I guarantee you, you know both kinds of people. More and more so in our world, we we are biblically illiterate. Okay, It used to be even atheists were Christian atheists. The God they denied is the God of the Bible. Okay, That that was more the case uh, of how it has been in the past. It's not that way today. You know people who are biblically illiterate. And there's a growing uh, population of people who are not biblically literate. So let's learn some things from the Apostle Paul and how he approaches evangelizing them. And I also know some people who are biblically literate. Who are not Christians, and so I take a little bit different approach with them. I chapter and verse them, if you will. Same gospel, same message, same savior. All the components need to be there, but we can learn from the Apostle Paul and what this looks like. So that's the plan for today, to get some encouragement in our being faithful witnesses, because that's what we want to be as Christians. And here in Omaha, Nebraska, not to mention in other places, uh, there are both kinds of people. So let's learn a thing or two about how we might do a better job of clearly communicating the gospel ...with other people. First, I think about 14 verses, uh, he's evangelizing, he's gospel preaching, if you will, to those who know and believe the Bible. And then in the remaining verses in chapter 17, those who don't believe the Bible, same message, same Savior, just a bit different verbiage. Ready to go? Hope you are. Hope this helps you. I hope it rubs off on you. Um, and I hope it rubs off on me. It says in verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... So they were in Philippi, so they've gone about 33 miles, I'm told. And now they come to Apollonia, 27 more miles. They came to Thessalonica, 35 more miles, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And here in the Macedonian region, Thessalonica is the key city at the time. It was even called the mother of Macedonia. So it's this strategic city, and he's going to preach there in the synagogue to the Jews and those who are listening and learning about the Jewish God. Verse 2 says, And Paul went in, and was, as was his custom. We've seen this again and again, even in the book of Acts. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So, the verses aren't recorded. All the details aren't recorded. Other texts, verses are recorded. But he could have gone to what kind of passages? He could have gone to Psalm 2. He and Peter both like to go to Psalm 2. It's a great one to go to in connecting the dots. Could have gone to Psalm 110. Could have gone to Isaiah 53. Could have gone a lot of different places showing them. It says proving to them. And what is he showing them? What is he proving to them? That Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem, the one who grew up in Nazareth, that Jesus is, what does it say there? The Christ. And I don't want to make things, uh, I don't want to talk down to you, but sometimes we use these words and we don't even know what they mean because we've said them so many times. The Christ, that means he's the king. He's the Messiah. Old Testament word is Messiah. New Testament word is Christ. They mean the exact same thing. Uh, it's, it's anointed one. And what you did in the ancient world is you anointed kings. It's symbolic. So there have been many Christs because there have been many Messiahs. Because throughout history, there have been many kings. Even Israel had many different kings. Uh, David was a king. So therefore, David was a Messiah. Therefore, David was a Christ. Okay, so you just have to get used to thinking that way, but we're waiting, according to the Old Testament and New Testament, for an ultimate king. A king who doesn't do the bad things that David did, and he was a great king. Uh, a king that doesn't do the things that Saul did, and he wasn't a great king. And on and on the list could go, but there's been this anticipation that one day there would be an ultimate king who doesn't have mixed motives. Who will faithfully provide for his people under his leadership. And he will be kind and gracious and merciful and loving. And he will uh, protect them from danger. Uh, he will, all, I said provide already, I think. He will protect them. He will rescue them from their enemies. Think of salvation theme. Oh, one day there will be an ultimate deliverer, Christ, Messiah, King. When will that day come? And we don't have to be afraid of our enemies anymore and no more warfare and we'll be safe and sound. I'm I'm trying to help you realize that's all built in the Christ. And so what does Paul do? They already theoretically believe that that day will come. And that one will come because you'd have to work really hard to not see it in the Old Testament. He's connecting the dots. The one who's come is Jesus. Yeah, but he suffered and died. Yes, let me show you that the Messiah will in fact suffer and die and be raised again so he can rule and reign forever. Fulfilling the Davidic promise. That's what he's up to. That's what he's doing. Let me remind you of the Isaiah 53 text. Let me remind you of the suffering servant text. Let me remind you that it's not inconsistent to have him suffer and die. And oh, by the way, theologically, he needs to die as a substitute to make atonement for the sins of his people. That's what Paul's up to there. I'd better hurry up or we are never going to get to Athens. And who doesn't want to go to Athens? At least one of you were just in Athens on my list someday. Okay, let's now look at the responses. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. So non-Jews who were at least intrigued, if not believing in the Jewish God, Yahweh, the one true and living God, not the gods of the nations. So they also believe, they also are persuaded, they join. And then it says, and not a few of the leading women. So, wealthy women, influential women in the community, and Luke includes them. And we see this a lot in the book of Acts. There's all different kinds of people. People from different places, different regions, different socioeconomic backgrounds, men and women, wealthy, poor. I like it that Luke keeps including the diversity of things. All different kinds of people need Christ, and all different kinds of people come to believe in Christ. But... Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous. So they're envious. There's resentment. Why would they be envious? Why would they be resentful? After all, their their friends just came to believe in Jesus who promises forgiveness of sins. Well, they're jealous because, like other things, nobody likes to lose. Uh, Nobody wants to be on the losing side. And there's turf wars, and it's true in religion as well. And so... Here it is, they're, they're They're jealous, they're bothered, they're bugged, they're envious. And they don't offer counter-arguments, they don't offer biblical counter-arguments, instead they offer violence. And so when you don't have a good argument from the Bible, even if you're a Bible believer, you don't answer with the Bible, what do you do? You you do something else. And so notice what it says in verse 5, And taking some wicked men of the rabble. How many of you have said rabble in the last week? Sometimes I'm like, what are, what are the translators thinking? Um, well, some men of the agora, I haven't said that lately either. Some men of the marketplace, the idea is these are people who just hang out. These are idle handed people who just hang out in the marketplace. They don't work. Um, they're, they're looking for something to do. I liked what the King James said, lewd fellows of the baser sort. See, (laughs) see, that's better than rabble. I looked it up. I look. I, I did consult one Greek dictionary, and it says uh, synonyms: loafer. That was that. That's weird. Lo, they're loafers or are they're, they're bums. Okay, that's like pat vernacular. Um, they're bums. They're idle-handed people. So let's recruit them. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Apparently, Jason is a convert. Apparently, Jason is a believer. Apparently, Jason, read between the lines, has a big enough house where he could house people uh, and maybe have Christian worship services. So let, let's go to Jason's house. That's where they think he is, seeking to bring them out of the, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Wow sounds like the it's like an army or military and you know they're just go through city after city just you know creating riots and disturbances and just destroying and looting everything they've turned the world upside down there's like you know four of them <laughs> telling people how to, how they can have forgiveness of sins <laughs> so they're overstating it for sure but i do actually like the commentary because in a certain sense Not the way they mean it. Indeed, they're turning the world upside down. Not ransacking properties, but maybe false religions. Okay, let's move on. The accusations continue. And Jason, poor guy. And Jason has received... I actually like it that Luke does this sometimes, though. Because he's offering enough details, and you might think, why did they have to include his name? Well, he's he's not just making things up. These are historic events. Luke pays attention to details. And sometimes, I think, for good apologetic defense reasons, he gives us more details than maybe we would even include. So, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So, nothing like taking a true statement, which it, that's true, and misconstruing it regarding It's clear intent, and that's certainly happening. Verse 8 says, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. So it's all about principles and ethics. (laughs) And a little cash will help. (laughs) Some things don't change, by the way. Okay, then we, we're off to Berea, so we better keep going to, to head there. Gospel progress, again, fueled by persecution. There's probably something there we can learn. So we don't like conflict. We like acceptance. Uh, but notice what happens. The gospel is now going to go somewhere else, and it's going to go somewhere else because of conflict. God providentially works even in that way. Now we go to Berea. The brothers, in verse 10, it says, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, 55 miles, I'm told. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. That would be the pattern. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So they have a willingness to learn and evaluate more fairly than the group did in the last town where they were in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We lo- I like people that are one, one finger on the text people. Unless you're using your phone and then it just goes bonkers. But, but right, they've got one finger on the text, and they're listening, and Paul is connecting dots, saying, look, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Now let's look at Psalm 2. Now let's look at Psalm 110. Now let's look at the broader swath of the development of the unfolding drama. And they're looking, 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 yep, 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 show us, show us, show us. And they're noble-minded because they actually want to see in contrast to where they had been before. It's a word that's used for legal investigation they 're serious about this they 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 they're they're serious minded about this they want to get it right, but they are open minded to objectivity and truth. Verse twelve says many of them therefore believed fascinating they' exam- if we go back to i think it 's fascinating because at the end of verse eleven daily to see if these things were so Oh, if they've believed, they've come to conclude that these things are so. Going on in verse 12, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So rich, poor, male, female, Jew, Greek, all different kinds of people. Oftentimes, I think that's actually what's meant in the Bible by world. He's the savior of the world. There are all different kinds of ethnicities, people, rich people, poor people, men, women. Everyone needs saving and all different kinds of people are being saved. 13 says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Let's, let's remember we're seeing a good model here. It was true with Peter and his proclamation. And now we see it with the Apostle Paul. Just because people reject the good news of salvation in Jesus doesn't mean salvation in Jesus is wrong. Let me put it another way, hopefully clearer. Just because people reject the good news of salvation in Christ when you share it with them doesn't mean you've done it wrong. Let me put it another way. It doesn't mean you should change the message. If you've got the message right, sometimes that's difficult. But if you've got the message right, if you've got the Christ right, just know some people believe and are super happy. And some people are not super happy. It's good that the Apostle Paul is not changing and doctoring things up in order to get more converts. It's important that we remember that too. So he's not a salesperson uh, trying to close the deal with everybody. He's proclaiming the good news. Remember, remember what we learned in chapter 16? The Lord has to open people's hearts up. We're just called to proclaim the message. But sometimes we think, I must have the message wrong. And maybe we do. But sometimes even when it's right, we think it's wrong because if it were, if it were right, everybody would believe it. I, I remember being new to studying the Bible and I only knew a few things and I just thought every, everybody who hears about this is going to believe this because I did. That didn't last long. <laughs> and then the more you read the Bible, you say, you know what? There's conflict involved as well as acceptance. Okay, we better keep moving. Let's move on now to Athens. I think we can do. We are. are, I'm. I'm I'm so on time. I'm going to slow it. wet. I'm not. Now we're going to we're going to move on, and now we're going to move into the world of religious pluralism, which is important in the 21st century in Omaha, Nebraska, and beyond. We're kind of at a place where religious pluralism is like the mandate. If you say you believe in one true and living God and that you need to believe in Jesus, you've committed some kind of hate crime. It's really, really bizarro world these days. I want you to know when he goes to Athens, he's stepping into religious pluralism. And he's going to proclaim the one true and living God to them, I think tactfully... I think pointedly and I think savingly because some people are going to believe and be rescued from their sins and others are going to say, tell me more, I'm interested. And other people are going to say, I reject. Okay, but, but this is helpful for us. It's really helpful. The Apostle Paul, because Jesus said, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Didn't say, well, you know, that th- they, they already feel good with all of their gods and I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings. No. They, they, they need to trust in Christ. Great commission. And so he goes. And I think he does his very best to not be the offense himself and to clearly communicate the gospel so that they can either... Accept or reject. Or some are going to say, tell us more. So let's remember that. This is important for us. Omaha, Nebraska, even. How does he maneuver there? Well, he maneuvers with the gospel. Okay, we better go to verse 15. Those who conducted, it just means led. Those who, who, who led him there. Uh, those who... Led Paul, brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Athens, so Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Parthenon, Temple of Athena, Demosthenes, all of the, uh, it's the the great place of ideas. Now, it's not in its glory day as it was or by this point in time, but it's still a significant place for ideas and their history is loaded. And so I tend to think Athens, ideas and idolatry. Okay. That's what, that, that's what Athens is known for. They had even been more famous. Now in the first century, they're still famous for it though. Ideas and idolatry. Okay. That's what they're all about in Athens. And so verse 16 says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He's doing what you would do. What would you do if you went to Athens today other than see the Paul stuff? (sighs) He's sightseeing. I'm in Athens. World famous. World famous then. Big time. If you're in Athens, you're going to go check everything out and take in all the sights. So he's doing that very thing. I'm not reading too much into that. Now, while he was waiting for them in Athens, let's keep going, though. His spirit was provoked within him. It's a, a word for strong, internal, permeating anger. He's mad. He's disturbed at the core of his being. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. God's, 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 God's everywhere. And it's provoking him because he has come to believe in the one true and living God. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so if you are a Christian like he is, idolatry troubles you. And if you've ever been to a place where there's all kinds of... of Fake religion, let's just say. And it gets, you, you, you know something of what this is like and to be troubled and to be bothered. I'm not going to p- mention places, but I've been in some places that are so amazingly off-putting and upsetting to me. I just feel like I need to get out and go take like a, a religious spiritual bath. I got to get out of here. This is upsetting and troubling to me. And you know what makes it worse? You know, it's one thing to see a bunch of idolatry. What makes it worse is when you see people. Because idols, even though they're made by human hands, enslave people. Because they put their hope in the thing. And they put their hope in the ceremony and all the stuff. It is so troubling. And surely he was so troubled by this. What's he going to do with his outrage? Maybe Paul, before he was converted, would have (laughs) done the unthinkable (laughs) But he, but he does something good here. Verse 17. So he reasoned. It's in chapter 20, it's translated talks. So don't, don't read too much into it. He talks. He reasons. It's the Greek word for dialogue. He talks with people. He reasons with them. Now remember, he did that earlier from the scriptures with the Jews. He's talking with them, dialoguing with them, wanting to understand what they think so he can engage their thoughts. So he's dialoguing with them. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so he's doing this in the synagogue, dialoguing with them, engaging them. But we really right now want to focus in on that second part. He also does it in the marketplace. And don't think grocery store. Right, My grandmother, I think most every day of her life when she was healthy, walked to the market, she said. Well, I went to the market today, and what she meant was I went to the grocery store. Well, you could have gone to the marketplace in the first century in Athens and bought food. You could exchange money for food, but you would also exchange ideas. Okay, It's where you go. It's where the action is. It's where you go to hear philosophy and it's where you go to exchange, yes, for goods and services, but it's, it's the hub of life and liveliness. Let's go engage. Let's go find out what's happening in the marketplace of ideas. That's what's happening there. And what does Paul do? Paul talks. Paul dialogues. Paul engages. He wants to understand better. Verse 18 goes uh, Verse 18 then says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So they're engaging him and talking with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? So they're being insulting. Uh, What is this guy who doesn't really have sophisticated arguments that resemble ours? What is he talking about? He he the idea is he just picks up crumbs. He's a crumb picker upper. Like this kind of idea and this kind of idea. But he doesn't have uh, thoughts that are formulated the way we like to formulate our thoughts. What he's saying doesn't fit in, in, into our systems. He's just a babbler. He's just a crumb picker-upper. He's not very sophisticated the way we are sophisticated. Which is interesting given Paul's actually advanced training. Maybe it's because he's so clear and simple. But I'm just guessing. Epicureans, they believed in gods, that gods lived remotely, that's important. Unconcerned with human affairs, no life after death or immortality, that will become important later. Stoics, among other things, they would believe in many gods with one supreme God being the world soul. Oftentimes fatalistic and for sure self Sufficient. I don't need anything. I don't need a lot. Minimalist, self-sufficient Stoics. Well, we could say more about Epicureans and Stoics, but I think at this point in time, let's just see they're not impressed with Paul. Verse eighteen says, "Others said he seems to be a preacher of a for, uh, foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection." Oh. Who's this guy? Okay, let's go to verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Aragopagus. What do you do there? This is, this is Mars Hill. This, this is where you go where apparently there were retired magistrates. Where you're going to go have the ideas evaluated in a more formal way. Alright, well, he, he must know something, by the way. They must be impressed enough to a certain degree to say, alright, let's take him over to the Aragopagus. Let's have him more formally evaluated. Say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Dr. Luke, our narrator, offers some good insight in verse 21. Look there. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Oh, we like new. We like novel. How can we better def- uh, Sharpen our argumentation and maybe change it or maybe add to it the way we would do in a polytheistic kind of culture. Now we know Paul isn't saying anything new, but it's new to them. So let's go further. How about the next verse, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aeropagus, I was saying it wrong before, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, depending on your translation, some of them make it sound like a big insult, and other translations make it sound like a compliment, or maybe others, a little bit, we don't really know so much. I wouldn't die on any of these hills, but I'll say I'm going to take it as generic, if not somewhat of a compliment. Let's get this conversation going. You know, my perception here is you are very spiritual. Right? Maybe let's use that word instead of religious. At least for our ears today. Because we don't like religion, but we like spirituality. Okay? Somebody's trying to be nice and accommodate you. I kid. I perceive, based upon my stroll and walk and listening and dialoguing and reasoning back and forth, here's my, here's my take. You folks are really spiritual. Okay? You are very religious. Here's why. Verse 23 is important. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, remember, idols everywhere, I found also an altar with this inscription, and this is really important here, to the unknown God. So, God's, God's, God's everywhere. A God for this, a God for that, a God for fertility, a God for this, a god a God's for everything. And you know what? Just in case we missed one, To cover all of our bases, because they're very spiritual, (laughs) to the unknown God. It's probably a safe way to do it. And Paul's gonna use that. How about this? Paul knows the Bible well enough, and the storyline of the Bible well enough, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, he understands it well enough, and I hope you're getting better at understanding it as we study the Bible, we read the Bible, we understand the narrative, we understand the themes. He knows it well enough, and now he's looking at their world and their culture, and he's going to explain the biblical reality to them in a way that they can understand it clear enough to either accept it or reject it. It's great. It's wonderful. It says in verse 23, What therefore, how about this? What therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you. It's wonderful. It's exploit, he's exploiting for sure, but, but you know what? Let me help you. It's, it's going to sting. It's going to hurt, but let me help you. Verse 24, the God who made the world, he's already offending them. But if it's true, he has to do it. But he's he's already being a contrarian. Let me tell you about this unknown God. The God who made the world and everything in it. Sovereignty of God, right? There's one God who made everything. Not like, you guys have made all of these gods with your own hands. So the the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Notice the contrast. The God who made, in verse 24, at the beginning and then, made by man contrast you've got it all wrong and you need to know you've got it all wrong verse 25 nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything you guys boast in being self-sufficient some of you do you know who's self-sufficient god is god is As though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the, he's the creator over everything. He's speaking in universals. So it doesn't make any sense to have all of these gods if there is one God who made everything and is sovereign over everything and gives everything to you. This is a, this is a big deal. If this is true. This is scandalous to religious pluralism. Oh boy. Contrary to the idols and the pseudo life that they have that you yourselves actually give them, how are idols animated? By the people who made them. Doesn't make any sense. But in one sense, it makes sense enough for Paul to say, you know what? God made the world, and he animates and cares for and takes care of it. You've gotten it all wrong. And and of all things to get wrong, right? Everybody's wrong about a lot of things, and hopefully we we learn the right thing, and then we change. And of all things to get wrong, this is what you don't want to have wrong. So I don't think Paul's hateful in doing this. I think he actually is obeying Jesus and extending love and generosity to them as has been extended to him. Let's keep going. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Every, the mankind word, Greek word ethnos. It's actually important. Every ethnicity, every different kind of people, every different kind of people group. And there were racists then, just like there are now. God made the one, and every single person, ethnos, has come from the one. Wow. Huh. Monotheism matters. God being the creator of the human race From one really matters. This is great. To live on all the face of the earth. Verse 26, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Notice, determined. He's sovereign. The only way anything actually happens on this planet is because God is actually involved. So two things are happening. It's important. God is different. He's the creator. He's not part of the creation. Oh, but it's not the deist kind of God. He's actually involved in caring for and making determinations on his earth. This is great what he's doing. He's dismantling their false ideologies and philosophies and theologies. And if that's true, there's obligation. Verse 27, that they should seek God. Notice not gods, but God. He made them. He's the only sovereign creator who cares. They're made in his image. And so there's a moral obligation, notice, to seek him. You want to know about the unknown God? I'm telling you about the unknown God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Which is interesting. Paul, Paul must be assuming sin now in the world. He must be assuming uh, spiritual blindness and distance from God. And so he uses that imagery of the the, the lights are off or your eyes don't work, and so God has done all of this, and so you know the right thing to do, it would be to try to, to know this God. Desperately, even if that's what it takes, to try to know this God. You'd be morally obligated to do so. Then it says in verse 27, Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. He's even going to quote somebody they're familiar with. You know what? A stop clock is right twice a day. And let me just tell you, he's transcendent, but he's also personal. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You know what? Provided I can use that statement by one of your poets to mean what I want it to mean. I'll use that quote. Because you know what? In a certain sense, we are his offspring. In a certain sense, we're made in his image. Okay, let's run with it. How about verse 29? Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You've got it totally perverted. You've got it totally upside down. He made us. In his image. So worship him. Don't make other things in some kind of weird image and then worship those things. This is crazy. Do notice those words in verse 29. We ought not to think. You have been thinking this way. We ought not think this way. This is wrong thinking. Yes, he's going to offend them. It's offensive to hear that you're wrong. But if you don't know you have a sin problem and a problem with God, why in the world would you ever need a Savior? You wouldn't. So let's keep moving with that in mind. 30 says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. So God has been patient. God has been long-suffering. But now, I mean, think about the fact that they're still alive and breathing. God has been patient. God has been long-suffering, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice again, he's speaking in universals. And so, you know, sometimes people, oh, people, I'm a universalist. Always lead to God, and, and everybody goes to heaven just by fact that they're a person or whatever, and they like to speak in universals. I want to do the Acts 17 Paul Athens thing and say, I really love the way you're speaking in terms of universals. The Bible speaks in terms of universals also, but in a different way than you do. Universal as God made everything, and everyone is accountable to him. And to the point where he says, everyone, everywhere, if you like universalism, so do I. Just a different kind. Everywhere, everyone is morally obligated to repent, to say, My thinking has been all wrong. Wow. Think about that. The gospel doesn't make any sense if it's one way. If it's one way, why in the world did God crucify his son when there were other ways? What a terrible God he would be. Everyone on planet earth is morally obligated to repent of their idolatry is what he's saying. And that's not hate speech. That's, would you please see that you need to trust in the one true and living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? All people, all people are wrong about God apart from God's grace. All people are wrong about self apart from God's grace. All people are wrong about judgment day apart from God's grace. It certainly would seem to be what he's saying here. How about verse 31? Because he has fixed a day. Oh, the God who determines, remember? He has fixed a day. Verse 6. Now we're in 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. It all belongs to him. You might say, what right does he have to do that? It's his world. You can't fault Paul for being illogical, on which he will judge the world, it all belongs to him, in righteousness, that's according to his standards, according to his law. Isn't it interesting that we want to judge God? Well how dare, who does he think he is? Yeah, God or something? The God who created the world and everything in it, and it is sovereign, and yeah, 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 yeah! Okay. He'll judge fairly in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And here's the proof. Here's the evidence. Why would I believe that he's done this? Give me evidence. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Wow. Happy Easter. I mean, the resurrection is awesome because it means if you trust in Jesus, you'll be raised. But you know what? The resurrection is really not awesome if you're not a believer because God has proven to everyone that he's going to judge in righteousness, which is not good news for you if you don't have an advocate. He's proven that he's going to judge in righteousness. And how has he proven this? By raising his son from the dead. World, you're on notice. The God who determines... History's going somewhere is gonna judge. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. That's not hopeful. That's not encouraging, but it sure has my attention. So I wanna go to Psalm 2 and and trust in the one who is the judge so I don't face his judgment. Paul's not citing Psalm 2 like apostles would in other texts, but in effect he's giving the same theology. He's given the same theology that's in the Bible. He's just not saying, now I want all of you Athenians to uh, turn to Psalm 2. But he's given them the same stuff. He knows the narrative well enough to be able to do that. God has been patient, but now it's time. Well, now for the responses and then we'll wrap up. 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I say that's that's not good news, but that, that's good because at least he was clear, right? If everyone would have said, isn't this wonderful? This is great. Maybe he wouldn't have been clear enough. Some make fun of him, but others said, we will hear you again about this. I'm interested in knowing more. Then verse 33 says, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. So he must have preached the clear gospel or there wouldn't be those believing. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Aragopite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. How about that? He knows his Bible well enough to say chapter, verse, chapter, verse, chapter, verse, reasoning with someone. I like to do that. I know I know lots of people who are not Christians who are biblically literate, and you probably do too. And you say, "What about this verse? What about this passage? Have you considered this?" I imagine a lot of you are good at that. I like doing that. I think we could probably get better at knowing the narrative, knowing the theology and caring enough for people to explain the gospel to them and why they need to trust in Jesus. Because the resurrected one is also going to be the judge. There's a growing need in our city, in our country, for you to know the big themes well enough so that you can communicate them to someone who doesn't even know the first thing about the Christian worldview. God, help us to preach Christ to everyone because there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be, what? Saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. But isn't it great to see that some, in fact, did believe, and they were no longer enslaved to myths, ideologies, theologies that will never, ever actually deliver them and will never give them eternal life. Think clearly about these things. Please, God, help us to do this. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Acts 17, and thank you for what happened in the lives of those who said they believed the Bible was true but needed to understand better, and also those who didn't really know anything about the Bible. But we know that people are made in your image, and we know that we can communicate the gospel clearly, but we have to first talk about the problem, the problem of alienation, the problem that we have with you because of sin. Help us to be kind and gracious and merciful. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.